on the docket today, bioterrorism, biosecurity, and that weird pink stuff that grows in your shower. Unfortunately, everyone is well aware of the threat posed by nuclear weapons. In 1945, the United States used nuclear weapons to destroy two cities in Japan. In 1961, the Soviet Union detonated a bomb that was 3,000 times more powerful. Today we're trying to rein in who has control of nuclear weapons. From the Iran nuclear deal to preliminary talks with North Korea, the U.S. is trying to control who has access to these huge, destructive powers. But what if a country didn't need massive factories and an expensive nuclear program to kill hundreds of thousands, even millions of people? What if even a small terrorist group or a rogue person could cook up destruction that could spread and multiply once it was released? Enter bioterrorism. Terrorist attacks that use a living thing to do the damage. It actually wouldn't be that difficult to grow up an infectious agent, a bacterium, fungus, or virus that can make people sick, and release it out into the world. As you might have guessed, the U.S. government has put a lot of research and preparation into biosecurity, protecting Americans from biological threats. And as you also might have guessed, the U.S. government sometimes messes up. I'm Ray Fuchsia. And I'm Nikki Turan. And this is another episode of Bench Time Stories. After World War II, the U.S. had become worried about the threat of biological attack. And, in September of 1950, the U.S. government reacted with one of many experimental exposures. Operation Sea Spray. The goal was to see how vulnerable San Francisco was to bioterrorism. The idea was that if you could determine how far a pathogen, a microorganism that can make people sick, might travel and where it might end up, you could build effective defensive measures. Or at least know who would need the most help once an attack had been unleashed. San Francisco's iconic fog and tall buildings also heighten the threat. Because of the way San Francisco Bay is structured, heat inland sucks in the cool air from the ocean, bringing the fog and everything else in the air with it. So, on September 20th, 1950, the U.S. Navy sent a minesweeper ship to spray bacteria into the air. The ship sat two miles off the coast and sprayed what they thought were harmless bacteria for six days. The Navy had chosen two bacteria for their experiment, Serratia marsicens and Bacillus lobigii. The soil bacteria Serratia was used to mimic tularemia, or rabbit fever, and Bacillus globigii was used to mimic its cousin Bacillus anthracis, or anthrax. Both were thought to be harmless. Tularemia and anthrax are both likely biological weapons. Both bacteria are easy to get a hold of and can do a lot of damage. Obviously, the U.S. government wasn't going to try to hurt their own people, so they picked Bacillus globigii and Serratia marsensis. Serratia was a nifty choice because it's red. This might sound mundane at first, but it's actually rather peculiar for a bacterium, and as a result, this made it really easy to tell where Serratia had gotten to. And San Francisco definitely got hit. The Navy had set up 43 monitoring stations around the city. These stations reported that, over the course of one week, there had been enough exposure for each of San Francisco's 800,000 residents to breathe in a million spores. The lethal dose of anthrax spores is between 10 and 20,000. The number of tularemia spores, though, is as few as 10. If the Navy had been spraying these species instead of their relatively harmless cousins, they could have wiped out the city thousands of times over. Well... They thought it was harmless bacteria they were spraying. True, they didn't wipe out the entire city, but that doesn't mean there weren't any deaths. Soon after the experiment, 11 San Franciscans checked into Stanford's hospital with very serious urinary tract infections, or UTIs. In one patient, the infection spread from his urinary tract through his blood 
and to his heart, he died. Scientists grew bacteria from his heart out on petri dishes, and red colonies sprung up. The culprit was serratia. This was so alarming and unusual that it got written up in a medical journal. Normally, people didn't find serratia in UTIs or in hearts. Something weird was going on. But Project Sea Spray was still highly classified. The Stanford scientists didn't know that their patients were effectively part of a larger bioterrorism experiment. The infections may not have been isolated to UTIs. There was also an outbreak of pneumonia at the time, but as no one ever grew that bacteria out on a Petri dish, they never identified the bacteria, and it was never conclusively linked to Operation Sea Spray. The reason Sriracha was able to kill people is because it creates what's called a biofilm. A biofilm? Film means it's a thin layer. Bio just refers to the fact that it's being made by biological organisms. One biofilm you're probably familiar with is the plaque on your teeth. The microorganisms that live on your teeth produce a matrix, essentially a hunk of gunk, that they live in. I always thought plaque was just poop and vomit that bacteria make. Kind of, but this makes it sound like it's an accident, an undesirable byproduct of daily life. In reality, the bacteria are producing this stuff, this biofilm, to make themselves a safe environment to live in. Essentially, the bacteria are terraforming your teeth. But they're your teeth, not the earth, so I guess we could call it dentiforming. Anyways, in this case, that involves transforming the surface into one that they can stick to. So serratia, in our story, was turning patients' urinary tracts into nice, cozy homes? Exactly. And, grosser than that, biofilms aren't just made by one kind of bacteria. So serratia was not the only one setting up home. They're usually home to tens to thousands of different kinds of microorganisms. And note that I said microorganisms and not just bacteria. Bacteria belong to a specific category of microorganism called prokaryotes. The defining feature of prokaryotes is that they don't keep their DNA in a nucleus. In addition to bacteria, there's also another variety of prokaryote that can live in biofilms, called archaea. Organisms that are not prokaryotes are called eukaryotes, which do have a nucleus to keep their DNA safe. Even though prokaryotes and eukaryotes are quite different, Some eukaryotes, like fungi or certain types of plankton, can actually also live in and help create biofilms. So we've got bacteria, archaea, fungi, and plankton living in harmony on our teeth. So this is pretty gross, but I think I've got a small serratia biofilm growing in my mouth. What? No way. Yes way. See here? I chipped one of my front teeth a year and a half ago. Like a month later, I noticed that there was this pink line where they fixed it. It got super pink but has faded a little bit by now. It's the same kind of pink that I see growing in my bathroom. I never saw this kind of film in my bathroom before moving to the Bay Area, and now it looks like it's going to be part of me forever. I guess you can blame the government. Biofilms are really hard to get rid of. Not only are they hard to physically wash off, the communities they build are more tolerant and more resistant to antibiotics than the individual species that make them up. Every bacterium and every microorganism lends a hand in a fight against the drug. If you get those films in your urinary tract or in your lungs, you're in for a bad and maybe even deadly time. Today, Sriracha is responsible for about 5% of hospital-acquired infections. More than 10% of the hospital-acquired infections that happen on burn wounds can be attributed to Sriracha. Sriracha forms films on catheters, tubes that are inserted into the body. These can be inserted into your urinary tract or your vein. Since these biofilms are hard to remove, Normal attempts to sterilize the catheters might not be enough. If you then have a not-totally-clean catheter and you insert it into people's bodies, you can get an opportunistic infection. Breathing it in or touching it probably isn't a problem, but letting a colony inside your body is. The military thought that the bacteria they were using were harmless, even though in reality they weren't. 
but they wanted to mimic harmful bacteria. If they had actually used harmful bacteria, how would this have hurt people? The military tests were attempting to stimulate anthrax and tularemia attacks. Anthrax and tularemia both form spores which are relatively stable. And spores are kind of like seeds. They're hardy little units that can keep organisms safe and stable until they get to a good spot to grow again. You've probably heard of anthrax before. When people get worried about an envelope full of white powder, it's because they think it might be anthrax spores. And in fact, in 2001, anthrax was mailed to three media outlets and two Democratic congressmen. 17 people got sick and five died. The spores can infect skin, causing black ulcers, the intestines, causing bloody diarrhea and vomiting, or the respiratory tract. In this last case, it kills 50 to 80% of those infected, even with treatment. When someone mails you anthrax spores, you risk breathing them in. The infection first starts in the chest lymph nodes, resulting in flu-like symptoms. It can then progress to pneumonia, filling the lungs with fluid. And 90% of the time, this is fatal. One big problem with anthrax is that the spores are too hardy and stable. They've been shown to survive for almost 50 years. The 2001 attacks cost $130 million to clean up a single post office. And that's not so great if someone were to want to use them as a tool of war. It's not like you can dump them, kill off your enemies, and then move your troops in. It would be a lot of work to decontaminate the area, and if you wanted it to happen naturally, it could take decades. Right. But if the goal is to cause terror, they're sublime. It's deadly, easy to grow, and easy to get. Anthrax is a naturally occurring bacteria and is pretty common in Africa and South and Central Asia. And the second type of pathogen Operation Sea Spray was mimicking, tularemia, is also surprisingly easy to find. It occurs naturally pretty much throughout the entire United States and in parts of Europe. Usually, humans are infected by ticks or biting flies, but as it's also carried by rabbits, it's actually gotten the nickname rabbit fever. In fact, people have contracted tularemia from accidentally lawn mowing small rabbits, which is just really, really sad. Tularemia is incredibly infectious. Just 10 spores can make someone sick. It's less deadly than anthrax, though, and doesn't stick around as long. Only 4% of patients who receive treatment die, and the spores only last a matter of weeks, even at the best conditions. But this makes it very efficient for biowarfare. The fever itself can last from weeks to months, temporarily wiping out the opposition's army, but letting you move your own troops in, in as few as a few weeks later. In fact, the Soviet Union produced thousands of tons of tularemia every year. Did they ever use it? There was an outbreak of respiratory tularemia among the Germans during World War II. The Germans had been heading to Stalingrad when the mass outbreak stopped them in their tracks. Up to 100,000 people fell sick from the outbreak, but the Soviets never actually took credit. It's also possible that when the people fled from the troops and left the grain in their fields, the rodent population exploded and provided a breeding ground for tularemia. So tularemia is so common, an outbreak could happen naturally. And I guess any Joe Schmo with an undergraduate degree in microbiology can grow a few ounces of it from a bunny. But not every infectious agent forms spores, or is as easy to get a hold of. Nevertheless, this doesn't mean they can't be effective agents of bioterrorism. One example that people are still very afraid of is smallpox. Smallpox is a virus. Technically, viruses aren't alive. Now, I object to saying viruses aren't alive. They've got DNA, or in some viruses, RNA, that contains instructions for making more of themselves. 
Yeah, but they can't do it alone. Viruses need to infect a living organism and hijack it in order to make its proteins and copy its DNA. Kind of like a little vampire. For smallpox, these DNA instructions are a recipe for the absolute basics the virus needs to hijack a cell and make a copy of itself. It convinces the cell to copy its DNA, make proteins from its own instructions, and then also uses parts of the human cell it grew up in to create a new virion, often exploding the cell in the process. Virion kind of means like virus cell, but technically it's not a cell. It's a virion. So smallpox hijacks the cell to reproduce. Obviously, the human cells don't appreciate this. The ones on the skin, including in the throat, fill with fluid and viruses. Right. This is the pox part of smallpox. Pox are bumps, kind of like chicken pox, but in smallpox, these fluid-filled sacs are key to spreading the virus. One big problem is that people get pox in their throats before they get them on their skin. They appear to just have the flu or something similar, and the pox aren't visible on their skin yet, but the bumps have already formed in their throat. Then, the virus pops out into their saliva and into the world when they talk or cough. This makes it incredibly contagious. It's so contagious and scary that the United States has smallpox vaccines stocked up, even though smallpox has been eradicated. Eradicated? It basically doesn't exist anymore. You can't just accidentally catch it like you could tularemia or anthrax. Since smallpox can only reproduce in humans, we're able to vaccinate enough people to choke it out. It reminds me of how some animals have gotten extinct because humans have destroyed their habitats. The vaccine souped up people's immune systems, destroying the habitat, and then smallpox died out. But if smallpox is gone, why does the government bother stockpiling vaccines? Well, smallpox isn't totally gone. The U.S. and Russian governments have a few vials in their freezers. This is a Cold War holdover kind of thing. Neither wants to fully destroy their stocks, just like neither of us wants to get rid of our nuclear weapons. Plus, having a little left over lets us study it, just in case. Does studying it always reduce the risk of an outbreak? Well, no. And actually, it might increase the risk. The smallpox genome was sequenced and published. A genome is a complete set of DNA instructions. DNA instructions physically look like a really, really long twisted ladder. This long twisted ladder shape is called a double helix. Smallpox's genome has 186,102 rungs. And the instructions themselves are the rungs or what we call bases. We can read the rungs of the ladder as A, C, T, and G. Scientists usually show the A, C, T, G rungs as different colors, red, blue, yellow, and green. Since each rung is actually a pair of letters, the drawing is a twisted ladder with, say, the right half red and the left half yellow, showing an A, T pair. And the next green and blue, a C, G pair. If you're reading the DNA, you only pay attention to one side at a time. Here. AC. That's because A's always pair with T's and C's always go with G's. So if you know one half says AC, the other has to say TG. And the cool part is that we can not only read the DNA, we can write it. We can turn the ACTG on a computer screen back into that ladder. But this is also kind of scary. Now that someone has figured out the sequence of smallpox's DNA, they can take this information off the internet and turn it back into the physical DNA instruction ladder. And that DNA has the instructions needed to hijack cells and make the complete smallpox virus. So you can just print out the DNA and get it into cells, and boom, you've got smallpox. Yeah, basically. You need a little coaxing by adding some other virus proteins, but once you added this Frankenstein-like jolt, the virus would be fully functioning and capable of spreading. 
wait, is this real? Like, what's stopping people from doing this? Can people actually do this? Yes and no-ish. Last year, a pharmaceutical company was able to Frankenstein together horsepox, which is closely related. They printed up the horsepox genome in 10 big chunks, because writing DNA is currently pretty hard, and then they got the virus to reproduce. But people have also put a lot of work into trying to prevent people from printing out this DNA. It's currently really hard to print out the DNA ladder, and the few companies that do do it actually double-check every order they get to make sure it's not part of smallpox. But science is advancing all the time. It used to be really, really hard to read DNA. And now I think your lab has a machine to read DNA in-house, right? Yeah, we've actually got multiple. Likewise, someday people will be able to write whatever DNA they want. So if someone printed smallpox and it got out, how could we know that it got out before people got sick? Seratia had that nifty red color that the government could track. But how can you tell if smallpox or tularemia or anthrax or anything else has been released? Could you look at their DNA to identify them? Or at least something like that? People set up air filters that can catch little things from the air. Obviously, the pathogens are too small to see, but you can check if they're there or not by looking to see if their DNA is there. You can do this using PCR. Oh, that's super cool. I use PCR in my lab all the time. And I'm sure you do too. It's the go-to when I want to make lots of copies of DNA. PCR is an acronym for Polymerase Chain Reaction. Polymerases are tiny molecular machines that stitch together many individual molecules, like putting beads on a chain. And that chain is called a polymer. So in this case, the DNA polymerase takes the single rungs of the ladder and stitches them together into the full ladder. Exactly. The DNA polymerase doesn't just throw together rungs in any random order. It uses a template. If you heat up the DNA, it unzips, so the ladder gets split in half vertically. The polymerase can then slide up the ladder, adding one rung at a time to the half ladder, making a full ladder. And since A always goes with T and C with G, all the information to make the left half is in the right half, and all the information for the right half is in the left half. But the polymerase can't just copy the DNA from the one half. It's got to have something to get it started, something to prime it. Yeah, it needs a primer. Primers are short half ladders that can get the polymerase started. If the primer is, say, TTTT, it'll only stick to DNA that is AAAA. So you'll be able to copy what's after the AAAA. And, say, you've got another primer that's CCCC. It'll only stick to GGGG and copy what's after that. So if you have a piece of DNA that's AAAA on one side and GGGG on the other with some stuff in between, you'll be able to copy that whole stretch. Right. So if I heat up the DNA to split the ladder in half and copy it with my polymerase, I'll end up with two ladders. If I split each of those in half and copy them, I'll get four, then eight, then 16, 32, 64, 128. If I do this 20 times, I'll have gone from one complete DNA double helix to over a million. And if you use primers that match smallpox DNA in two different but close together parts, you'll be able to specifically copy only smallpox DNA and not anything else. You can then run the DNA pieces out on an agarose gel. Small pieces of DNA can get through the gel faster than big pieces, just like my three-year-old brother can get through a crowd faster than I can. Even if we're going the same speed, he can fit between people's legs where I bump into people and get held up. The primers and random A's, C's, T's, and G's will end up farther than the smallpox DNA chunk. You can then stain the DNA by using something that sticks between the rungs of the ladder. So if you add even a tiny bit of smallpox in your air filter, 
you'd be able to make so many copies of it, you could see it on your agarose gel. It ends up looking like a little rectangle on the gel. Scientists call this a band. Right, and if there was no smallpox DNA, your primers wouldn't have anything to match to, and your polymerase wouldn't have anything to copy, and you wouldn't get a band. But what if one of your primers matched and not the other? If one primer matched, you'd only be able to copy one side. The polymerase only likes to copy the latter in one direction. So you'd unzip your DNA, the primer would sit down on one side, and you'd copy that side. But the other side wouldn't get copied. You'd end up with one and a half pieces. One full copy and one, like, left copy. If you do this again, you'd end up with one full copy, again, and two left copies. So after 20 rounds, you'd have one full copy and 20 left copies. That's not enough to see on the gel. That's why you need two primers that each match different ends of the DNA. So this lets you know that you had smallpox DNA on your air filter. It lets you figure out if a pathogen is there, even if it doesn't make a nifty pink color. This brings us back to Operation Sea Spray. In fact, Sriracha wasn't quite the marker they wanted. It turns out the Navy was unable to see the pink. They came up with a hand-wavy response that conditions weren't right for Sriracha to produce its characteristic pigment. So the government sprayed the area with bacteria, sickened a bunch of people, killed at least one person, contributed to hospital-acquired infections, and couldn't even tell that they'd spread the pink bacteria. So they could tell they'd spread the bacteria, just not the pink. And as any scientist can tell you, sometimes experiments fail. Catastrophically. I guess that makes me feel a little better. My experiments fail all the time, but at least I haven't killed anyone yet. I'm Ray Fuchsia. And I'm Nikki Turan. And this is another episode of Bench Time Stories. Recorded at Stanford KZSU 90.1 FM. Thanks for listening.